When America sneezes, the old adage goes, the world catches a cold. Well, with the resurgence of COVID cases and job numbers missing forecasts, there are definite signs of sniffles in the world's largest economy, if not a full-blown sneeze. And across the Pacific, higher raw material prices, slower exports and fresh COVID-19 outbreaks in China have raised concerns about the pace of global economic recovery. This is No Ordinary Wednesday, an in-depth look at the events and trends moving markets, shaping the economy and changing the game. Welcome, I'm Jeremy Max. Today, we're going to ask the Head of Investment Strategy at Investec Wealth and Investment UK, John Wynne Evans, whether the negative data coming out of the United States and China are just temporary speed wobbles or perhaps signs of a longer-term slowdown in economic growth. And back home, with the spectre of central banks reining in stimulus efforts in the face of rising inflation, what can we expect from the South African Reserve Bank? Head of Sales and Structuring at Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking, Obakeng Pitsi, weighs in. And finally, this week's burning question, will the government be taking a chunk out of the retirement savings of anyone who emigrates from South Africa? Jill Anthony, tax and fiduciary specialist at Investec Wealth and Investment, explains what the draft taxation laws amendment bill means for emigres and anyone earning money abroad. But let's begin with those global economic sniffles, or dare we add a few coughs as well. John Wynne Evans, welcome to No Ordinary Wednesday. The Delta variant is surging in the world economies. Let's start with this. Both the United States and China are showing signs of slowing growth. Is this temporary or sign of more to come? Uh, yes, uh, good day to you. And um, I, th- I think there are two separate things to address here. One is the sort of rate of the post-COVID recovery, and the second is the sort of ongoing effects, particularly of the Delta variant. There's no doubt that we have already passed what you might call peak recovery. So things are definitely slowing down, and there's only so long that you can sustain that sort of V-shaped bounce after the extreme falls that we had in economic activity last year. And the market has, I think, been wrestling for a little while to come to terms with what you might call this second derivative of change in terms of the deceleration in the recovery path. But I think the important thing is is that growth is still positive and looks set to be so certainly through this year and next year and possibly well into 2023-24 as well. However, as I said, you do then have to look at the sort of Delta variant effects and that is definitely slowing down activity at the moment because of some of the disruption that it is causing to both supply chains and to labour markets. And again, I think you know people see this as being, uh, to, to borrow a phrase from the Fed, relatively transitory. Um, but it, again, it's been more persistent, perhaps, than expected. So as you rightly say, there are signs of slowing growth, but I don't think they should be surprising, particularly at this point, and not sufficiently slowing down to cause uh, too much concern. Can we try and draw a line then between the different variants and decision making? How do these variants and the differing rates of vaccine rollout in various countries then affect our ability to make economic and market forecasts? I think in the short term, they make them more difficult uh, than one would like. I think you have to as well take some kind of central view as we do, that ultimately where we will get to is the fact that COVID will be endemic. And so we will just have to find a way to live with it 
but at the same time that we have faith in the medical and scientific community to create and continue creating vaccines which will allow economic activity and social activity to take place, possibly on a slightly constrained degree to what it was before, but generally much the same. I think the difficulty here is that the variants are prevalent in different places at different times. So as we've seen, you know, with the Delta variant in particular, uh, it started in India, came to the UK, spread very rapidly in the UK and then outwards into Europe. And, you know, it's been sort of confined to, to sort of the European areas for a while, and then it sort of leaked back out, back towards Asia. I think the most extraordinary thing in some respects about the Delta variant is that it sort of boomeranged back to the other side of the world. And you know, what I think is interesting is that countries that had a reasonably good record at containing the original Wuhan strain uh, of the virus uh, suddenly are really struggling against the Delta strain. And it definitely means that countries that have gone for a total eradication strategy, and I would note particularly New Zealand uh, amongst those countries, are you know really going to struggle now because they haven't got the uh, you know the vaccines in place, they haven't got sufficient amount of the population vaccinated, and they're going to find it really difficult to open up. Uh, not just domestically, but particularly, I think, internationally at this particular point. You know, it's one of the kind of strange ironies of the world in, in some respects that, the, you know, the original you know, virus, what we call the, the Wuhan virus, as it were, was, was not that bad in, in many respects. It's actually the variants of it that have got out into the world, uh, which have been much worse. And now, of course, we've sent it back over to China and uh, they've, they've had some problems of their own with it. We do know, John, the world over that markets are trying to get a handle on when the Fed and the ECB will start to so-called taper their asset purchase programs. But in the face of slowing growth, as we've just been discussing, is this likely? What then, if it is, is the implication for markets? I think the key point on in terms of tapering from the central banks, first of all, is that the, the Fed in particular has learned its lesson from 2013 and the original version of the taper tantrum. So when it basically sprung a surprise on, a, on an unsuspecting market that it was going at some point in the future to uh, start reducing its asset purchases, but the market just wasn't uh, expecting that at all. And we all kind of know that, you know, you can't be quite a surprise second time around when these things happen, uh, which helps. But also the, the Fed has you know, bent over backwards and been at pains to try to explain to the market, you know, what the signposts are going to be needed for uh, them to begin tapering and also to, to give very sort of definite instructions as to what pace they will do it and over what time period they will do it and when they will begin. And uh, right now, the market is centred on December of this year as the point for beginning tapering. And then that will run over several months through to the sort of third quarter of 2022, when they will finally stop uh, that particular amount of asset purchases. Um, the European Central Bank, on the other hand, I think you could say is already tapering. They've announced they're going to reduce their pandemic emergency purchase program. And I think there's a clue in the name there, the emergency part of it. Um, you know, are we in an emergency anymore? Probably not, is the answer to that. So again, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that they are doing this. But I think if you're going to try to characterize tapering, you have to ask yourself, is it an easing of the accelerator or is it putting on the brakes? And I think if you try to think of it more as an easing of the accelerator, um, then it sort of sounds somewhat less scary than putting the brakes on. So, you know, even though 
Um, and as we talked with the second derivative of change in terms of growth, it's not dissimilar here with these asset purchase programs. Central banks and aggregates are still going to be buying assets from the market for well over a year, probably still from now. So they'll still be adding liquidity to the financial system, just less so than they were doing previously. Uh, so that definitely takes us from being in a position where we've had a very strong tailwind from liquidity to one that is tailing off. It's not necessarily a headwind yet. As long as underlying growth is okay, we shouldn't get into too many major problems. Where we've seen trouble in the past, in both 2015 and 2018, is where you had a slowing of liquidity provision combined with a growth scare. So in 2015, it was very much to do with China and the big setback we had in the commodities markets, for example. In 2018, uh, it coincided with the sort of beginnings of the trade war from Donald Trump. So as I say, as long as this time around, you know, growth underlying remains, uh, then we should retain a reasonable equilibrium in markets. So John, we've seen US and Europe equities hitting record highs lately. I'm wondering what your view is. Are they overpriced? Uh, we, we don't think so. They're, they're not necessarily looking cheap. Um, but uh, I think for people to be saying, as I know some commentators said, this is the, you know, the bubble of a lifetime, we think is misleading. The fact that discount rates are low at the moment, they do go a long way to justifying equity valuations based on some kind of you know, discounted cash flow type modelling. And I think we also have to remember that the nature of companies, certainly large companies, the ones that dominate indices, particularly in the US today, is very different to what it was in the past. They have much lower intensity of capital. They can make higher returns on that capital, which justifies higher valuations, particularly when you look at it on a sort of you know, near-term price-earnings ratio basis. And also, they're producing tremendous cash flows uh, with very, very high marginal profitability. So if you put all of that into the model together, it certainly makes you know, valuations and levels of equity indices today uh, much more attainable and justifiable, perhaps, than uh, a lot of people think they might be. And one should never necessarily be scared of record highs for indices. Look at any charts for equity indices over the long term, they travel from the you know the bottom left to the top right. So uh, they are going to make records uh, as time goes by. And just a, a quick one in conclusion, how concerned, how worried should we be about persistent inflation? Well, we should be worried about pers- persistent inflation if it occurs. The question is, will it uh, right now, the jury remains very much out on persistent inflation. I think we're going through a period of extreme turbulence in the global economy. And you know, there's no doubt there are lots of one-off factors that are creating um, shorter-term inflation, whether it be in supply chains of goods or whether it be in labour markets. And I think once we sort of start to normalise the, uh, the labour market a little bit, and also you know the supply response that you will get to higher prices as well. Then we should see you know, things settling down a little bit. But against that, there is the fact that you know the sort of levelling up agenda uh, that we've seen to counteract uh, inequality in the social area is definitely leading to a an environment in which higher wages, particularly for and the lower skilled workers are being encouraged. And that you know, could at some point feed through to somewhat higher inflation through the wage channel. But you know, the other side of that coin is you put more money into the hands of people who have a greater propensity to spend it, uh, you could also get higher activity. So there's two sides to every coin. I think a, a, an awful lot will depend upon what the 
reaction function of central banks is. And this is where I think this is one of the massive ifs for the next few years. And, you know, will they react as they've done historically to a higher inflation environment by pressing back on it and raising interest rates? Or will they sort of conduct us through a period of effective financial repression in which they keep rates low and inflation allowed to be higher with a view to allowing balance sheets to be repaired uh, through the inflation channel? And I, I think that's an open question at this point, but it makes a big difference to how you might allocate portfolios in that case. And certainly in the former case, if they you know, raise interest rates more aggressively, then we're faced with a potential environment of higher rates, higher bond yields, a higher discount rate and lower equity valuations, which is the single biggest threat to portfolio investors. And uh, we will have to you know, deal with that as it comes, should it come. And that's where we're going to leave it. John Wynne Evans, Head of Investment Strategy at Investec Wealth and Investment UK. Thank you very much for joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. Thank you very much. In just a moment, we'll talk to the Head of Sales and Structuring at Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking, Obakeng Pitsi, about inflation and interest rates in South Africa. But first, a quick reminder that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. Don't miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us. So, Obakang, thank you very much for joining us on No Ordinary Wednesday. Let me start with this. Last week, the Reserve Bank governor hinted that the country could lower its inflation targets. Let's start with this. Why is this significant and what could it mean for interest rates in the next couple of months? Thanks, Jeremy. I think there is no cause, no immediate cause for concern with regard to the comments from the governor last week. The review of the inflation targeting framework is something that happens from time to time by National Treasury in consultation with the finance ministry. So over the next few months, there is no immediate cause for concern, so no no need for panic at the disco there. The significance, however, to that is South Africa for the past 20 odd years has had an inflation targeting, inflation target band of three to six percent. Although the governor would like to maintain inflation at that midpoint of four and a half percent, it does mean that all the way up to six percent, there is no required action from the SARB. And what that does is that inflation expectations tend to be a lot higher and future expectations of interest rates also tend to be a lot higher. How does the pace then of economic growth factor into decision around interest rates? I think the connection between the pace of growth and interest rates, Jeremy, is inflation. Now, strong growth and moderate inflation are not bad things. They are great things. What happens is most economies try to stay away from hyper or runaway inflation. And so when you do have an economy that overheats, that grows too quickly and prices increase too fast, you will then have in normal course of business increasing of interest rates to try to stem that flow and maintain price stability. Let's talk a little about the pros and cons then of leaving rates lower for a little bit longer. Sure. I do think that there are definite pros to having a more accommodative interest rate environment. If you think about the local economy, just that's a lower cost of borrowing, meaning more cash in everyone's pockets. It also does allow more people access to borrowing. So it's definitely good in terms of consumption, in terms of stimulating growth within an economy. 
The cons, however, is that the South African economy currently is quite reliant on external or portfolio flows through its bond program. And a lot of that is from offshore. Now, with lower interest rates, that does anchor the yield that these bonds are issued at. And that could be an issue for South Africa going forward. So let me ask you this now. We know that South Africa's interest rates are high relative to most developed economies. But how do we compare to other emerging markets, which might be a more equitable or a fairer way of looking at things? That's correct, Jeremy. I think when compared to our EMPs, we are definitely at the lower end of that interest rate scale. If you think about it, our short-term rate is at 3.5%. And if you compare that to some of our EM peers, you've got India that's at about 4%, Brazil just over 5%, Russia at 6.75%, and Mexico as well at 4.5%. So we are on the lower end of that scale. And what that does do is that does potentially, from an EM flow, put us at risk of losing some of this liquidity that will come from developed markets. What does all of this then mean for the currency? Chairman, I think volatility is going to be our friend for the foreseeable future. As our EMPs do continue to increase rates, which is what is expected to happen, you'll see a lot of this excess liquidity find its way to our peers. When we do follow suit and we do have liftoff in the local interest rate environments, I do see some of that coming back. So a lot more volatility in the currency. I do also think that South Africa's investor mix or base has changed somewhat. Due to the fact that we were downgraded by Moody's sub-investment grade at the back end of last year, we have more of a speculative investor in our portfolio or in our investor mix. And as, as one knows, these speculators are all about the yield and they'll be moving in and out of our assets according to what yield they provide. So a lot more volatility is on the cards. Okay, so Obakeng, how should we be thinking about savings, making investments, big capital purchases like buying a house, for instance? How should I be factoring this into any decision that I'm making regarding investment? So, Jeremy, I definitely do think that the decision making needs to be split. If you look at from a liabilities or a borrowings point of view, with the expectation that interest rates will increase in the not so distant future, one should definitely consider locking in that interest rate if at all possible. And what you want to achieve by doing that is cash flow certainty. You do not want to have less money in your pocket due to increase in interest rates that had nothing to do with you. And so one would definitely look to lock in a lot of that, some of that, if at all possible. On the asset side, Jeremy, on the savings and investments, I think with the expectation in the market that interest rates will increase in the not too distant future, one should be very cautious and not potentially lock into savings or investments, given the fact that with a expectation of high interest rates, one would definitely want to partake in that. So no locking in on the asset side. On the liability front, that same expectation of higher interest rates, I do think one should consider trying to lock in that borrowing rate if at all possible. And what you get by doing that, Jeremy, is a lot more cash flow certainty, given the fact that interest rates may increase or definitely will increase in the not so distant future. Obakeng Pitsi, thank you very much indeed for joining us on No Ordinary Wednesday, Head of Sales and Structuring at Investec corporate and institutional banking. Thanks, Jeremy. Always a pleasure. In every episode of No Ordinary Wednesday, we pick a question about the world of money that's been on our listeners' minds, and we do our very best to answer it. If you have such a question, I invite you to go to investec.com forward slash now. That's investec.com forward slash N-O-W and share your conundrum with us. 
Now, this week's question, will South Africans leaving our shores be leaving behind not just pleasant memories of Mzanzi, but also a chunk of their retirement savings? Investec Wealth and Investment Tax and Fiduciary Specialist, Jill Anthony, a very warm welcome. Thanks for joining us on No Ordinary Wednesday. Let's start with this. Help us out if you can. What exactly does Draft Taxation Laws Amendment Bill mean for emigrants? So essentially, Treasury has proposed that as of March next year, individuals that cease South African tax residency will be deemed to have withdrawn from their interest in their retirement fund. So your pension fund, your provident fund and your retirement annuities. And this deemed withdrawal will be subject to tax in South Africa at the withdrawal or retirement tax rates. So in a nutshell, Treasury is trying to ensure that prior to your exit from South Africa, your retirement funds are taxed. So what's interesting about this is that even though the tax liability arises upon your exit, it is deferred together with any interest that accumulates on that tax liability up until an actual liquidity event. So when you withdraw from the fund or when a retirement benefit is in fact receivable. So let's say, for instance, I cease residency in June of 2022. However, I only withdraw from a fund 10 years later. Throughout that period, interest will be accumulating on my tax liability. And this conflicts with existing tax legislation in the sense that interest is only imposed on a tax that is due and payable. So this is just one of the many challenges we are seeing from this draft legislation. I'm wondering to myself why the need for legislation. Is it indicative perhaps of a more robust, a more aggressive revenue service? At the roots of it, I think that the revenue would like to ensure that income and gains that are generated and accumulated in South Africa are actually taxed in South Africa. So if you have to think about it practically, let's say I'm a South African resident, I'm living and I'm working and I'm earning a salary in South Africa and making allowable contributions to my retirement funds, all the while receiving a tax deduction for this. So one day I decide to pack up my bags and move offshore and immigrate. A double taxation agreement could potentially take away way South Africans taxing rights and allocate this to my new country of residence. And even better for me, I could immigrate to a jurisdiction that says, not only are you losing your taxing rights, South Africa, but we may not tax this retirement funds either. So I could escape tax in both South Africa and my new country of residence. And a good example of this is the res non-dom regime in the UK. So an immigrant with res non-dom status in the UK can currently exit their retirement funds from South Africa, potentially suffering zero tax. And as long as their funds are held in a non-UK account, the UK may not tax it. New Zealand has a similar regime in the sense that they have a four-year tax break for foreign sourced income. So an immigrant may be placed on similar footing. So you could understand why SARS doesn't like the way things are. And I think that at the root of it all, they're trying to curb perceived abuse of domestic legislation and discourage capital flights. So you've mentioned the legislative difficulties of an interest charge on the deemed tax deferral. So I'm now wondering, are there any other difficulties that the draft legislation poses? What's your assessment? Yeah, certainly, Jeremy. There's a number of administrative and practical and legislative difficulties with the draft legislation. For example, um, in contrast to residents who will remain in South Africa who have the option to draw out a third of their retirement savings, 
suffer the tax on that and annuitize two-thirds thereof. The way the draft legislation currently reads, you can surmise that the deemed tax liability would incur taking the full retirement fund value into account, whereas the cash flow on exit only relates to one-third of the value. So the difficulty with the current draft is that it could discourage consumer retirement habits and change savings behavior. From an international perspective, there's a risk of double taxation. So post-immigration, a treaty may allocate the sole taxing rights to a particular jurisdiction like Hong Kong or Australia. So the risk is that when I exit South Africa, I get this deemed tax. And then when I actually withdraw from my retirement funds, I can be taxed in the subsequent jurisdiction. It is, however, important to note that this would only occur to the extent that individuals would not receive a credit for taxes paid in South Africa. Lastly, draft legislation does not deal with what happens in the event of a failed immigration. So let's say a South African immigrant returns to South Africa for whatever reason. There's no clarity as to whether they receive a tax credit for the deemed tax and the accrued interest which they have paid. So it's important to bear in mind that the proposed changes are in draft format and may be subject to change. Uh, We are aware that various industry submissions have been made on these highlighted points. And the final version, if this legislation does come to fruition, may look substantially different. But if people are concerned about these aspects, we would recommend that they speak to their tax advisors and immigration specialists. And what if I immigrated years ago? So if you immigrated years ago, this legislation as it stands would not be applicable to you because the effective date is 1 March 2022. So it will be applicable to years of assessment commencing on or after the state. And just a final question, let's bring it uh, back to the here and now. What are you seeing in terms of trend? Is there a large take-up in the immigration space? Yeah, so we have seen an increase in immigrations taking place, but we wouldn't say this is primarily due to tax. Clients have cited that politics, unrest, lack of jobs and crime are a bigger driving force for them immigrating. What we have seen is an increase in foreign investment offshore, as well as the number of clients that are interested in citizenship and residency programs, even though they have no intention to actually immigrate. I mean, people love it here. We love it in South Africa. However, I do always caution clients to be mindful before obtaining citizenship or residency um, in a country and seek professional advice because this could lead to unintended consequences. From an estate planning perspective, for example, Mauritius and Portugal have forced hairship, which essentially means that their in-country laws will dictate who inherits from your estate. From a tax perspective, an offshore or domestic trust may no longer be viable for US green card holders or for Australian taxpayers. So if clients are concerned about sovereign risk or would like a RAND hedge, an alternative would be to build up a nested offshore and diversify your wealth. We found that a global investment base often gives clients the peace of mind they need. And if anyone is interested in this, they are welcome to chat to one of our wealth managers or bankers. And that was this week's burning question. Jill Anthony, tax and fiduciary specialist at Investec Wealth and Investment. Thank you for joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. Thank you, Jeremy. And that brings us to the end of this episode of No Ordinary Wednesday. Do join us again on the 29th of September as we continue our discussion on money trends shaping your world. We've lined up another great panel of experts. So if you haven't yet subscribed, search for Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Until next time, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs, and the entire Focus Radio team. 
The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.